Thank you. As is kind of usual on our Sunday evenings, we, we pick a book and we go through it for the whole academic year. So we'll start in September and we'll be in Mark until um, we finish in July. And in our little setting, in our little story for this evening, we have got four short stories, it seems to me, in three settings. So in, in verse 14 to 15, you see the king has arrived and with him comes the kingdom. In verse 16 to 20, by the Sea of Galilee, the king begins to gather people, people who will follow him, people who will go with him. And then in 21 to 28, in the synagogue in Capernaum, the king encounters both opposition and admiration. But it seems that as you look at the passage as a whole, this is a passage about words. It's about a king who speaks with authority. If you were here last week, do you remember the story so far in Mark? Have a glance back if you weren't, or even if you were and you're forgetful. Have a look back with me and see what's going on. Mostly the focus has been in on John the Baptist. Do you remember he was the one who was going to get people ready for God? That was what he came for. He was going to come, we saw from the Malachi quote in verse 2, he was going to come and judge his people. And from the Isaiah quote in verse 3, he was going to come and rescue his people. So God was going to come to judge and to rescue. And that is what we see as we go through Mark. And John was coming to get the people ready for God. And John comes like Elijah. He looks like Elijah, he dresses like Elijah, he sounds a bit like Elijah, and the people flock to him at the Jordan. Ready. They come from towns. They come from villages, all kinds of people to be baptised, all kinds of people turning back to God, ready for the king. And John was popular, but it wasn't about John. John was preparing the way for somebody else. The main event was coming. John was special, but he was just the warmer path, getting people ready. The one who was coming, John wasn't even prepared to touch his sandals. And John baptised with water, but somebody was going to come. Do you remember who's going to baptise with the Holy Spirit? As if, as if God was going to change people from the inside. And after 400 years of silence, God arrives. But not as we expect, it's... It's a slightly shocking entrance. The first thing he does is he's baptised and we're thinking, has he got sins to deal with? What's he doing? You know, he's identifying himself with his people. Lowering himself to their level. But then the second shocking thing, do you see, is he's driven away. So he's baptised and then verse 12, or once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. He's in the wilderness almost as if he's paralleling the people of God in the wilderness from the Old Testament. Almost as if he is the new people of God. He's in the wilderness with wild animals, almost as if he's the new Adam. And he's being tempted by Satan. Which is interesting. Almost as if God's king is going to have a battle, not at a political level or a national level, but at a spiritual level. Even at the very start, we see his king's going to come and 
not deal with occupying Roman forces, but deal with big enemies. Sin, Satan, death. From the beginning we get a glimpse of the kind of king he's going to be. Now our perspective, our assumptions are exploded because he's got a much, much bigger thing to do than we thought. And John the Baptist was getting people ready. But look, verse 14, as our passage begins, John has gone. The warm-up act is in prison. And Jesus' public ministry starts. Before we kind of jump in, though, I want to give you just a reminder as well of that tool from last week as to how we study Mark. Something I was taught um, as a student, I remember it well, and it's been very helpful as you look at Mark whenever. Um, basically, there are three helpful questions you can ask of Mark whenever you read Mark's Gospel. And they are, who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what does it mean to follow him? So who is Jesus, his identity? What did he come to do, his mission? What does it mean to follow him, our response? And wherever you are in Mark, those are three really helpful questions to ask. And the rule of thumb, it's not as neat as it might be, and we'll see that tonight, but the rule of thumb is the first half, there's an emphasis on who is Jesus. The second half, chapter 8 onwards, uh, what did he come to do? And then right the way through, we've got kind of bobbing in and out, what does it mean to follow him? What should our response be to this man? So have those verses, have those thoughts, sorry, in the back of your mind tonight as we look at these verses. And it'll be clear, I think we get answers to all three of those strands. Remember, who is Jesus? What did he come to do? What does it mean to follow him? So verse 14 to 15. We said this was a section about Jesus' words. And in 14 to 15, you see the king's authoritative message. First words of Jesus' public ministry, see it in verse 15. Do you see? The time has come, he says. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Some questions there. What does it mean, God's kingdom? What do, what do we think of when we hear the word kingdom? Kingdom for us normally means a, a geographical area. That's the way things normally work. Somewhere that is ruled by a king. Whereas I take it in the Bible, God's kingdom is less about somewhere that is ruled by a king, more about someone who is ruled by the king. God's kingdom are his people over whom he reigns. His people who follow him. Now one thing we didn't mention last week, there was too much in there, but one thing we didn't mention was that at Jesus' baptism you hear words from God the Father. So do you remember God, the Spirit descends, God the Father speaks, and we see God the Son empowered for ministry. But the words that come from God the Father echo Psalm 2. And if you know Psalm 2, you'll know it's a psalm about a coronation of God's King. God publicly installing his Son with authority and power. And it seems to me from that point onwards we see Jesus as God's Son, his King who is ruling his kingdom. And what's the correct way to act when you meet God's king? Verse 15, repent. Turn. 
Turn away from your old way of living. Abandon living for self now. And live for him. Because it's not just repent. It's not just turn. It's not just abandon your old way of living. It's, It's follow him. Turn from self to him. Believe. Trust. Repentance never lives on its own. It's always accompanied with faith. And so Jesus says, follow me. Do you see, we we abandon all our little efforts to form our own little kingdoms and we follow him now as king. No longer are we king, he is king now. I want to say, that might be a message for you this evening. It, It might be that call to repent, to believe, to trust, to turn, to follow, to to abandon your old way of living and to trust him and live for him. For the Christian, it's a a once-in-a-lifetime thing and it's a daily thing. It's an every-morning thing. It's a daily battle thing. Repenting, believing. Turn from self, turn to him. We do it once and we do it always. Don't don't stop listening to Jesus. Don't stop repenting. Don't stop believing. Keep trusting. Listen. Obey. Follow. And Mark shows us what that looks like from verse 16 to 20. We see the king's authority to call in. And Mark, as is his style, is... Is extraordinarily stark in the way that he describes it to us, his description of events. If you read the parallel passages in John, there's much more description, there's much more background, there's much more flowery stuff, there's much more content. Mark, I take it quite deliberately, just cuts to the chase and says, here's what it means to follow Jesus. And he gets rid of the details. And look, verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, his brother Andrew, casting a net into the lake, But they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Sea of Galilee had an an excellent supply of fish. There was thriving fishing industry. It was well known throughout the whole area. Loads of people employed. And Jesus speaks to this initial pair, Simon, that's Peter, and Andrew. Burly, hardened, manual workers. There's not much description, there's not much small talk. He says, follow me, and they leave their nets and they follow. No longer fishing for fish. Verse 17, now they're going to fish for people. And then James and, and John preparing their nets. We don't know how many generations the Zebedee family had been fishing by the Sea of Galilee. But one encounter with Jesus and everything changes. Life is never the same again. Again, they leave their father, they leave their hired men, and they follow. It is a stark and uncomfortable picture of discipleship, isn't it? So you think, we're kind of there thinking about, the, well, how does that work? And we've got practicalities going on in our mind and the whatabouts and we're longing for the nuance and we're longing for the caveats. But 
just notice for now how stark it is. They leave behind their old ways of life. They leave behind nets and people and jobs. And now they follow Jesus. And now he comes first. That is the model that Mark gives us. I take it the principle is just the same for us. That pinch will be felt in different ways, depending on who we are, different ages and stages, different things that we love. It might not involve such a huge change in jobs as it did for these four. But the call of Jesus, his kingly call over us, does mean that from from then on our lives are not at our disposal, but at his. Jesus comes first. Verse 17, over our occupation. Verse 19, over our families. Verse 20, even seemingly over profitable businesses. Businesses that can afford to employ other people. Jesus comes first. To follow him means, in a sense, we leave these things behind. And it's all about him. I vividly remember, as a a young Christian, just finished university, it was summer 1998. Um, Don't try and age me. No, I've said that. It makes me 37. Just concentrate on the passage. Um, Summer 1998. And I was hugely challenged from this passage by the desire that we all have to kind of try and drag the nets with us. We want to follow Jesus, but we kind of want to keep a foot in our old camp as well. We don't really want to completely follow because we like our old way of doing things. And Mark is just so deliberately stark and challenging. They left their nets behind, they left their family behind, they left their businesses behind. And Jesus came first. You see, when, when someone's got that kind of authority and he says, follow me, that's what you do. There aren't ifs and buts. We follow. But what are they going to do? Because it's striking, isn't it? They leave one sort of fishing behind. And there's a new kind of fishing which they're involved in. They pick up another type of fishing. I, I take it it's impossible for us to embrace this rescuing king for ourselves and then and then somehow make sure that nobody else is involved in that rescue. We kind of keep it to ourselves that the kind of rescue that we've experienced I don't really want anybody else to enjoy that. They stop fishing for fish and they start fishing for people and of course there's more than one way to catch a fish I'm told by people who like fishing. Some you catch with a hook, some with worms, some with flies, some with huge great nets, some with just sticks of dynamite. Chuck them in and see what you get. You don't have to be in a pulpit or on a soapbox or in the centre of Oxford with a table, but as followers of Jesus, we're all to be fishing for people. There's dozens of different ways that can work itself out. But we're people who have known a rescue, who have known a king, and so we are people who who tell others of this rescuer, this king. If you've been around at all, um, at Maldon Road, one of the things you know that we like to do is something called Christianity Explored. It's a chance actually to look at Mark's Gospel in in more depth, in a way. 
and ask your questions and think about who Jesus is. What relevance does he actually have? Why did he come? Why does it matter? The next one's starting uh, October the 20th. It's on a Monday. There are seven weeks. There's uh, a short talk, uh, a Bible study, a nice food and a chance to ask questions. Maybe that's something for you. Maybe that's something for your mate. But we think the Word of God, we think Mark's Gospel, is such a helpful place to look to understand what Jesus is about. So we'd love you to bring your fishing for people vocation along to Christianity Explored. You see, this king has authority to gather people and they follow him. They join him in his mission. But more than that, In the second half of our verses, you see not just the king's authority to call in, but the king's authority to drive out. Jesus, it seems, has moved. He's still in the same general area, but he's moved from the countryside by the Sea of Galilee into the town of Capernaum. And he's it Saturday. He's in a synagogue. And he opens his mouth. And at verse 22, the people are amazed. Why? Because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. It wasn't that there was no teaching about God at the time, it was just that it's as if we were all in the dark, rummaging around. It's a power cut and you can't see what's going on and everyone's blind and Jesus comes and brings light. Things make sense, there's a clarity. Sure, there was teaching every week in the, in the temple, the synagogue, but Jesus was set apart from the contemporary teachers because, well, he didn't say as Moses says, or he didn't say as Rabbi someone says. He teaches from his own authority. You ought to know who you can trust in life. Do you want to know who makes sense of life? People are amazed because he teaches with authority. And in a world today where we don't know who we can lean on, we've got politicians and spin doctors and speech writers, here's someone to listen to. Here's someone with authority. Here's someone who will teach you truth. And actually Jesus doesn't just say... You know, here's my take on it all. Here's what I think is right. Here's, here's a few ideas. Weigh them up, see what you think. He's not just one competing voice among many. He is the voice. He is the one voice to listen to. He is the one voice to care about. Verse 22, people were amazed because he spoke with authority. Maybe we say, well, he can talk the talk. I've met a few people with the gift of the gab. Is his life going to match up to what he says? Politicians, they're exposed. People in power. I'm always reading in the newspaper of folk who have have been found out, whose private lives have been shown to be different from the public persona. Can we trust this man? He might speak and people follow him. He might teach and people are amazed. Is it all talk? Is there more than that? 
And Mark says, yes. Yes, there's much more than that. Again, just at the start of the Gospel, we just get this glimpse. He encounters this man with an impure spirit that, that there's more going on as God's king than we expected. There's stuff going on on a sort of supernatural level. A supernatural authority. We get a glimpse of why he came. We get a foretaste of the cross. And so verse 23. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. And what your friends would make of this. It sounds a bit like a horror movie. The Exorcist or something. I know for some people, talk of evil spirits is talk of sort of ignorant superstition. It's first century gullibility. We can explain that away now. Have a listen though to, to William Blatty. He was the producer of the film The Exorcist. He said this. He said, as far as God goes, I'm a non-believer. But when it comes to the devil... Well, that's something else. The devil does lots of advertising. The devil does lots of commercials. The Bible is very clear that the devil is real. There are forces of evil out there, but they have been conquered by Jesus. And he is in charge. And those forces of evil have been in every century and every part of the world. And yet Jesus has utter authority over them. And so with the words, he... He removes them and they're gone. Isn't it interesting that we know who Jesus is because of 1 verse 1. We're in on the secret from the very beginning. But the first encounter that he has with someone who knows who he is, is leaked by his enemies. Leaked by those with, with supernatural knowledge of some sense. The impure spirit is removed, but he knew who Jesus was. And so in the first half, by the Sea of Galilee, the authority of Jesus' words gather people. And in the second half, in the synagogue in Capernaum, the authority of Jesus' words scatters enemies. You see, Jesus is putting together a broken world. The story of the Bible is the story of God wanting to put things right that have gone wrong. Back in Genesis 3, the first man and the first woman shake their puny little fists at God and say, we want to go our own way. And from that moment onwards, everything goes wrong. There's sin, suffering, selfishness, disease, demons, death. And they're waiting for someone to come and fix it. And here is Jesus. He's dealing with demons. Next week we'll see he deals with disease. He's putting together a broken world. God's king has come. He's come to put things right. And so, 27, 28, the people were so amazed, they asked each other, what is this? And you teaching them with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. You see, word is getting out about Jesus. 
His reputation is beginning to rocket. He is popular. He's on the front page of every newspaper. Well, what do you make of him? If you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I'd love to chat to you afterwards and see what you make of this man, this man who has authority, words that make people follow him, teaching that means that they hang off his every word, commands, so the evil spirits that are driven out. Who is this man? It's one of the most important questions you'll ever answer. And if you are a Christian, if you would say that you are a follower of Jesus, perhaps you're with Simon, Andrew, James and John and you followed him. Can I ask you, as the challenges hit me this week, is your Jesus too safe? Is he too comfortable to sanitise, that the, the thing that confronts me in this passage is it's just very stark what it means to follow Jesus. To leave behind nets, family, jobs, businesses, and to follow him. If you follow Jesus, have some of your some of those disturbing edges been kind of chiselled off? And it's all a bit too easy. I wonder if some of us, as perhaps me, we've been challenged to just live a bit close to the edge, to stop our discipleship being a bit too comfortable. Mark writes deliberately to provoke us, to show us the starkness of what it means to follow this king, the authority that he has over our lives. And that makes us uncomfortable. 